Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode, we have Justin and Lauren. Mysterious sounds from the depths of the ocean, learning how to fly on Titan and some unusual Winter Olympic sports, as well as figuring out how to make science fiction technology from Star Wars and Star Trek a reality, thanks to some clever physics students in the UK. All this and more on this week's episode of The Great And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Lauren, you know, it's, it's the 60th, 60th anniversary of something incredibly important this year, uh, coming up very soon, in fact, um, and that is the story of something terrible and monstrous coming out of the ocean and terrorizing mankind. Now, of course, I'm talking about Godzilla, which celebrates its 60th anniversary um, this year and quite soon, in fact. But there's another strange noise that's been coming from the depths of the ocean 50 years ago. And this isn't Godzilla. This isn't some supernatural film or comic book character. This is a real-life mystery that was coming from the depths of our oceans that have confused, infuriated, and maybe even scared some scientists for the last 50 years with its mysterious noises. So, Lauren, what's going on here? So in about the 1960s, um, submarines were actually moving around the oceans in the Antarctic, and they they actually heard a, um, a series of repetitive quacking noises. And if I was in a submarine, and you've got to imagine, like, submarines, especially in the 60s and the Cold War time, what they were using was sonar and a lot of other acoustic technologies to try and find other submarines to hunt them, you know, and get them, or ships. And if I just started hearing weird quacking noises, I would start to think I'd gone, like, stir-crazy being locked up inside a submarine. I mean, there's no ducks swimming that down <laughs> low that they'll be able to hear quacking noises. Well, that's true, and I also don't expect ducks to be sort of quacking around in Antarctica. <laughs> True. So, so what what did what did these sub submariners think they were listening to? Well, the thing is, the sounds were actually so repetitive that scientists originally thought that maybe they were human made coming from some submarines. And then, as time went on, people possibly suggested maybe it was a fish. I mean, but the noise was too loud for it to be a fish. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of terrifying. Like, it, and it's the, the loudness, the depth, and the repetitiveness for it to really be something that you know, didn't really make sense because it sounded like it could have quite easily been you know, something mechanical or some type of process. So, so how do they crack this mystery of this sea duck? So it turns out that instead of a sea duck, what we actually have is an Antarctic mink whale, which produces the duck-like sound. So that's, that's, that's amazing. So it's, it's actually, it's not a duck and it's not, it's not a submarine or some secret new Godzilla lurking at the bottom, but it's just a whale. Why, why does this whale sound like a duck? <laughs> we have absolutely no idea yet. We just have a whole bunch of recordings trying to figure out what they were. So maybe we can use these recordings to figure out what these whales are saying to each other. <laughs> yeah, so it's actually quite funny. I mean, like, so the researchers, they, they tagged, you know, two minke whales in Antarctica um, with some microphones, you know, just to get an idea of, you know, what they were, how they were moving around. And then when they started listening to the sounds on these microphones, they started hearing quacking. And when they started, like, researching about it, they realised everyone else was like, oh, that's the noise. 
so they didn't get confused and think maybe they attached the microphones to some ducks. They knew they were definitely attached to the whales, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because they were using it to track their movements and positions for time. But it, it's it's um it's quite funny. So. How did we not find out that there was these whales making this noise before this point? Well, it's it's quite hard to actually isolate the sounds that certain types of whales make. We can hear weird noises in the ocean. It's really easy to hear, a, for example, a blue whale or something like that, mostly because sound carries for hundreds of kilometres in water really easily. Um, but if you don't know where it comes from, it can all be a bit confusing, especially in the noise. So the only reason why they picked this up is because they literally put the mics on the whales. And it was it's a deep-sea kind of mating call, much similar to other types of whales that they have. And it wouldn't have been heard near the surface. It's just been heard now. And now they can actually isolate it. It's like, well, it's coming from this microphone that we know is definitely on this whale. And that's how they can be so definitive about it. But now they can use this sound to actually track them because now that they know that this is their sound, they can look for it from various other listening data that they get and go, oh, okay, so in this recording from over here near South Africa, that's a minky whale. And from this recording over here near South America, that's also a minky whale because they can track their movements with the, with the microphones now. Now that they know that the duck, so- duck sound is actually a minky whale. That's really cool. So... Don't worry, the the mysterious noise from the deep that sounds like a duck is just a harmless whale trying to uh, find some friends in the ocean. And may the fourth be with you, and also with you. Wait, I think that's wrong. That's what they say in mass, isn't it? Yeah, I think you've just combined mass with the force, which is fine because, you know, Jedi is an accepted religion in the UK, so that that that's totally okay to do that. But I don't, I don't know if that's quite how they open their services. <laughs> um, as Lauren is alluding to, the fourth of May um, is uh, obviously International Star Wars Day. It's basically it's a big thing for Star Wars fans. But the next story has a lot to do with Star Wars fans and scientists coming up with some inventive ways uh, to make Star Wars technology a reality. So, Justin, I've heard of, like, a lot of different awesome, like, sci-fi technologies in Star Wars. I mean, you've got, like, wait, I'm thinking of Star Trek. That's the phases to sun thing, isn't it? Well, there are stun guns in Star Wars, but also it's more predominant in Star Trek. Okay. In Star Wars, they just shoot with guns that miss a lot, (laughs) whereas Star Trek, they tend to stun. But yes, no, that's correct. Stun is in both of them. The Death Star is definitely um, a part of Star Wars, though, isn't it? That's that's correct, and that uses a super massive laser. Um, it's actually a com- combination of several lasers in a big parametric dish to combine into one massive laser beam that then explodes an entire planet. Look, it's technically feasible once you have an energy source that big to power that massive a laser. You could destroy a planet if you could solve all the other problems first. Yeah. So that yes, that 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 is feasible-ish. I'm guessing that's not the sci-fi tech we're talking about today, though. Well, no, that's just a big laser. Anyone can make that, provided they have enough money. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, if you have a spaceship, right, so you say you have the Millennium Falcon or an X-Wing or even the USS Enterprise, if you want to merge into Star Trek land, um, all of these kind of big spaceships are protected by shields. And, you know, you'd be familiar with in video games and a lot of other things, these, these shields that sort of absorb incoming laser beams and or any other thing being shot at and they're really cool i think we can all agree that we'd love to have one of those protecting us mm-hmm. 
But the problem with actually making one of those into reality is a whole different story. So some students have submitted a, a paper to the Journal of Physics Special Topics, which is a, um, a paper run by the University of Leicester in the UK, for students to submit their ideas to and get it in a peer-reviewed fashion. They've actually come up with a method, and they outline it in great detail with complex scientific calculations on how you could actually build a deflector shield using electromagnetic radiation. So how would you build a reflector shield? So you'd be familiar with the fact that our Earth, the, the, the atmosphere, has some upper layer on it, about 50 kilometres up, called the ionosphere. And it's made of plasma, which is really cool, which is basically melt, melted matter to such a high temperature that it sort of becomes plasma. Um, and that, what that does is actually sort of protects the Earth from all the cosmic radiation and radiation from the sun that's more dangerous to us. And we see that as the aurora borealis and the aurora australis in Australia. Um, so that's, that is a big shield around the Earth in practice. And the idea behind it is kind of to replicate the same sort of thing, but around a spaceship. And you can do it. Like, you can actually do it. You get two layers of magnetic fields, and then you trap the plasma sort of like inside these two fields in a bubble around you. And that can be used to reflect and block electromagnetic radiation. And you can do that with radio frequencies. You can do that with visible light. You can do that with a whole bunch of other things in the atmosphere. So, for example, the, the ion sphere, the plasma in the ion sphere, actually reflects radio waves. And that's how we bounce radio waves off the atmosphere back down to communicate between multiple points that don't have line of sight. So you're saying I could create my own little no-signal zone? Well, that, that's, that's right. Absolutely no signal. In fact, the dangerous part about building one of these really, really strong and powerful magnetic fields surrounded by plasma radiation, surrounded by another magnetic field is that it will block a very important type of electromagnetic radiation, light. And if light can't get in because it's bouncing off your shield, you're not going to be a very good pilot because you'll be flying mm -hmm. blind. So that's the major challenge that they sort of identify with this force field. You could build one, certainly, and it would protect you, that's true, but it would leave you not really able to make much movement. Um, so what they've, actually, what they've actually designed is they, they suggest using an ultraviolet camera. Um, and what, why you would do that is ultraviolet radiation is normally built, is a type of radiation above the frequency of normal light. And so you could use that. Um, to still see stuff that's happening outside of it and then shield yourself inside this bubble uh, and, and you can see out using ultraviolet radiation, ultraviolet light, which is a fascinating little way to, to dodge the major issue. So it's quite interesting. It's a bit of a thought experiment because we, we wouldn't be able to necessarily do it. However, it's a great way to show that if you're studying science and physics, you can figure out some solutions to some really amazing problems and make our sci-fi ideas, fantasies into a reality with some clever science. Now, Lauren, I know you just love titans. And I know you just love, you know, all these amazing sci-fi and fantasy stories about titans and massive things and the struggle between good and evil and complications of the world. But... What about the actual planet Titan? Do you know much about the planet Titan? Does Aaron Yeager live on there? No, unfortunately. Well, not that we've found out. Um, is it a moon that circles 
Saturn or Jupiter or something? Yeah, that's right. So Titan is one of the moons of Saturn, and it's a really enigmatic moon because it's covered in this massive surface of ice, which we think is made of petrochemicals, hydrocarbons, like oil, basically. Frozen oil, lakes of water and oil, everything like that. And we've sent a couple of probes there, and it's potentially got life underneath this massive ice sheet these massive geysers that occur there. And it's probably one of our best chances of finding life in our solar system, if we can go there to visit it with more detail. But that's not why I want to talk about <laughs> talk about Titan. As fascinating as Titan is, there's some, some interesting science that has been done about it. Now, Titan is not that large in size. Um, it's, it's a small moon, um, which means that it has produced gravity, like our moon around Earth does. And it also has... A, a dense, a, a less dense atmosphere. So the there is an atmosphere, which is good because that's important. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere, but Titan does. It does have an atmosphere, but it's less dense. It's mostly made of nitrogen. Um, unlike Earth's atmosphere, it's got more nitrogen than the Earth. And it's so that means the surface pressure on it is the, in the air is actually much stronger. And it means you can do some really tremendous things. So you know a wingsuit, Lauren. You, can you imagine a wingsuit for me? Are you talking about the type that you go, like, gliding in as you fly from an aeroplane? Yeah, that's right. So the people who sort of jump out, air, uh, out of an, air, an aeroplane, it's kind of like wings. They look like a sugar glider or a, a possum. And they sort of glide along with that, and they could do all these crazy manoeuvring things like that. So that that's, if you had to take a wingsuit like that to Titan, and he took someone who was fast, say Usain Bolt, the mm-hmm. champion sprinter who can uh, run at a top speed of... 12.27 metres a second. Um, if you took him to Titan and you got him to run, turns out that if he was in a wingsuit, he would have to generate enough lift to actually take off and fly. What? Wait, we have we could have a flying man? Could have a flying Titan. Usain Bolt on Titan. Oh, wow. Could he throw thunderbolts like um, Zeus? I don't know if it would necessarily make him into Zeus, but oh. it would be really very interesting. Now, the nitrogen there is quite cold. For It is minus 175 degrees. So it's not quite liquid, but it's it's just made it to the gas stage. So it's really cold there. So he would have, running that fast would obviously help him warm up, but it's not going to be easy to do. And as I mentioned before, it's... Uh, it's kind of breathable. Maybe it would be breathable air, but you probably would still need to be in a spacesuit. So if you could actually reach 12.27 metres a second running in a massive spacesuit on another planet, then he's doing very well. But if he did, it would generate enough lift from the nitrogen in the air and the reduced gravity and lower density of the atmosphere would mean he would be able to fly just from the power of the gases in that air and his own movement. Do you know what this means, Justin? Uh, no. Well, aside from flying Usain Bolt's and clearly the best winter Olympic sport ever. That's what I was getting at. The best winter Olympic sports ever. Look, we hosted an Olympics in Sochi, which is kind of a summer resort town. I, I feel that, like, if you've got to do it, you've got to do it somewhere properly cold, but get summer Olympians to participate, right? So you hold the winter, the summer Olympics with Usain Bolt and all of these people on Titan and then get them to break all these amazing records by flying and jumping. Could you imagine pole, pole vaulting or any of these other, like long jump? Long jump, you would actually just take off and fly. I think we need to create a whole bunch of new um, categories for these type of sports. That's right, the interstellar Olympics. Now, I, I definitely feel that 
the interstellar olympics is clearly going to be one of the mainstays of of uh, scientific sport activity to come and we this could have risk, a, we could have a titan as the mascot i feel that probably pushing it. it's probably too cold to be wearing walking around with exposed skin <laughs> now all this fantastic jokes that we're making about, it's actually a paper that was published by the Journal of Physics Special Topics in University of Leicester in England. It was put together by final year students. So this is actually a peer-reviewed journal run by the university to give the university students a chance to really test out scientific ideas, do research, and get it published. And this was one of the, the topics there. Could human flight be possible on other planets? And they found out that on Titan, if you're a good sprinter, you could probably do it. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. We've learned just exactly what it takes to fly on Titan and how we can win gold at the Winter Olympics, as well as the mysterious sounds from the depth of the oceans being whales and how to make science fiction shields a reality. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.